0: You're listening to episode 15 of the Eddie Out podcast, current conversations with our community and their connections to the river, hosted by Natalie Zollinger. Welcome. What's up, everybody? How's it going? Hope you're doing well. Thanks for tuning back into another episode here of the podcast. If this is your first time listening in, welcome. Thanks for joining me in this dynamic conversation. If you've been tuning in for a while now, welcome back. I fucking love you. (laughs) Today's episode is a special one. My guest is J.R. Robinson, a West Coast based filmmaker, writer, photographer, and the producer of Blood of the West, an in development documentary series about the Colorado River watershed. J.R. was born and raised as what he likes to call a college rat moving around from Oregon to New York to Iowa to New Zealand and now residing in San Francisco, California. JR talks about his childhood passions, river influences, mentors in the film industry, and hiking the PCT. His latest project, Blood of the West, is the story of the Colorado River from source to sea. Told in eight parts, this documentary project will follow each of the Colorado's main tributaries, including the Green, San Juan, and Virgin Rivers from their headwaters to their confluence. As it follows the rivers downstream, it will follow the history of the watershed, tackle its present struggles, and speculate towards its possible future. I was blown away by the amount of information and passion J.R. has about the Colorado River and its watershed. I really enjoyed this conversation and know you will too. And without further ado, an uninterrupted conversation with J.R. Robinson. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we have the pleasure to edit out with J.R. Robinson. John Robinson. Jr. <laughs> welcome to the show. I'm really stoked to have you here.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm really stoked to be on it. Um, so I, I was just listening to one of your episodes uh, this afternoon, just getting ready for it. And so I, I like I like your show and I'm, I'm excited to be part of it.
0: Yeah, thank you. And this is the first time we're meeting and um, it's a pleasure to see your face and see where you're calling from. You no. you said you were calling in from California from San Fran?
1: Yeah, so currently in the Bay Area. So hopefully, you know, not too much longer cuz I need to get out to the river and shoot, but uh but yeah, this is where where I'm at right now and uh um yeah, uh love the Colorado River, love the 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 entire Colorado basin. So um that's sort of where my heart is in a lot of ways. Um I'm kind of from all over, but Um, But yeah, San Francisco. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, it's where my heart is, too. So we have that shared love and interest.
1: Yeah.
0: Before we talk about your documentary series, um, Blood of the West, I'd love to spend a little time getting to know you since this is the first time we're meeting um, a little bit about where you grew up, what your childhood was like, and where you found the river or how you connected to the river. For sure.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, where do I start? Like. I know, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wherever you want, man.
1: I could go like all the way back so you know like I'm not even joking when like one of my first memories from being a kid was actually in um in the southwest like road trip with my family and I think I was like 3 or 4 or something um and I had like these like very clear memories of like wandering through arches and um going to the Grand Canyon and pretending to push my dad over the edge which <laughs> he didn't like oh dear um and then I <laughs> You know stuff like that. or going to Mesa Verde, and like my, my parents were huge, like they were reading all the the books about the um ancestral paans and um, so they were very in tune with that and trying to learn as much as possible when I was younger. and so I remember doing that. and then going to Canyon de Shea was like very clear memory for me, like hiking down to the White House ruins. um and I remember i mean i was I was tiny, but uh, I remember crossing like the Creek um, through Cane de Chez, And I remember it just being super wide, but not that deep. And I remember like this crayfish was coming towards me. Um, and I, it was like the size of a lobster, I swear. <laughs> and I was like, I remember being terrified. Um, but then like on the other side, I remember like, you know, playing with this young Navajo girl, like we became like best friends, like within the space of like five minutes, and <laughs> spent the whole afternoon just playing with her while my da- dad, and my mom were like taking photos of the ruins or interacting with the the Navajo traders down there. And so it's like that, I guess, would be like my first, my first, uh, you know, introduction to the river uh, and into the to the watershed in general to the Southwest um you know i i grew up my dad was a university professor and so i moved around a lot i i like to say i wasn't an army brat but i was a i was a university brat um (laughs) nice because like i i moved from from university to university and and um but wherever i lived it was the outdoors that sort of like spoke to me um you know uh, i lived in oregon for my first nine years and i remember my grandparents had this um they had a house like on this bluff like overlooking the illinois river which is a tributary of the rogue river um and like my cousins and i and my little sister we would just go and spend all day in the river and we'd come back just like completely pruned and just exhausted and dirty and muddy and you know we'd get hosed off with the with the hose outside and then like pass out on the living room floor and then be up at sunrise again you know Go out again to the river after we had a bowl of fruit of um <laughs> frosted flakes. Frosted flakes were oh, hell yeah! Thing.
0: But hell yeah, yeah, Tony the Tiger, so
1: <laughs> Tony the Tiger, yeah. So, um, but he's, you know, it's like that was an, an experience. We moved to upstate New York after that, and you know, there was, there was a creek behind my house, um, that fed into the Susquehanna River. Uh, I always spent time down there and in the woods back there, and you know um I'd, I'd sneak back there and we'd build like tree forts and all sorts of stuff in the woods and we'd go down and catch turtles and bring them back and just let them run loose in the house and my mom couldn't stand it but um and then we moved to another place in upstate new york and we had another creek back there and i taught my sister how to catch frogs there and then we'd go and we'd watch beavers like playing the, the lake up at this wildlife refuge and um, you know, my sister would like take the frogs. She got really good at it so she would take the frogs and take them to school. Um, and so like that was a big part of it and then we moved to Iowa. Um, and so I grew up in the Midwest, went to high school and um and undergrad in in at uh, the University of Iowa. Um, but I was on the crew team in high school uh, on the river like every day um with the crew team there. Um, different kind of boating than than you're used to, probably on the Colorado, but <laughs> um but it is a chance to like be on the water and connect with the river and um you know the the Iowa River is a completely different river than anything we have out west um but it runs into a lot of the same issues with agricultural runoff and and mud and everything like that, so I started to like understand a little bit of river stuff while I was there um I don't know how far you want me to keep going, but, uh, but yeah, I went, to, uh, after University of Iowa, I went to New Zealand and lived in New Zealand for a year. Um, so I worked, uh, just in independent film, uh, down in, uh, uh down in Wellington, um, while they were shooting King Kong, but I was not <laughs> able to get on King Kong, but all of my friends were on King Kong. So we were, um, like we were making short films and we were making, um, uh, all, all sorts of little, little personal projects and working on commercials and stuff like once uh, King Kong shut down. Um, And so I had a really cool experience there, just like learning the process of filmmaking over there Uh, and then came back to the U S and went to graduate school down in Southern California, Chapman university down in orange County. I did my thesis film there. Um, It's called new world water, um, uh, which uh, it's basically a post-apocalyptic, you know, uh sort of dystopian view of of the world if if water runs out um and like the the evil corporation was was a actually like a bottled water company um back back in the day Oh so,
0: um,
1: yeah so, <laughs> it
0: sounds fascinating yeah. we'll put the link in the show notes
1: yeah sure yeah i god i haven't watched it in years but um <laughs> but yeah like don't judge me too hard on it. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so, so that was sort of my introduction to the Colorado River because I, I shot it at uh, the Salton Sea, um, which um, is kind of like the starting point for a lot of the issues in the Colorado River in general, but we can get into that later. It's one of those like linking points, like I said, um, where everything is, is sort of connected with the river.
0: Hmm. well it just sounds um, like you have just a, a you know a deep appreciation and love for the outdoors and it's taught I you do. it's like been your greatest teacher and you've also been able to teach your sister you know what you learn and like be a mentor to her it sounds like
1: yeah I you know I try to to I some like degree to think of myself as a <laughs> mentor to her uh, you know I tell her that I'm her mentor <laughs> is
0: it survivor. just you and her or are there others yeah, it's, it's,
1: no it's me and her um so she's about five years well yeah she's five years younger than me um so and then she's she's got a son um my nephew elijah who is like the coolest kid in the world
2: Mm,
1: um but yeah i mean like we (laughs) we spent our childhood just sort of like growing up and um because we moved around so much it was like we had each other It was like my mom my dad me and my sister and um you know we would didn't have a ton of friends like in elementary school and stuff because we were always like the new kids in school and Mm. so like we always just hung out together like exploring the woods or playing in the creek and you know catching catching frogs and and getting into all sorts of trouble there so
0: yeah, well, it sounds like the river's kind of been a common theme. I mean, every time you tapped into a place that you grew up, you talked about the river and its tributary to a greater river—from Oregon to New York to Iowa to New Zealand. You know, it's it's followed you whether you knew it or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I <laughs> was mean, like, I, you're gonna I, study me. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't. You know, I I never went into any of it thinking like, oh, I'm gonna look to tell a story as big as below the West. Uh, um you know even when i started blood of the west i didn't think it was going to be as big a story as blood of the west um but it's you know everything everything connects you know it's the um you know the way i we were talking about this in the pre-interview but um you know the way i outline is not a traditional linear outline i don't go you know a then one then two then three and then you know um, I started like a central hub, and I, I use my mapping software to sort of like, I have an idea, and then I branch off of that idea. So if the idea is, you know, Colorado, I've, I've got, you know, on one end, I've got Denver, but then I've got on one, another arm, I've got the West Slope, and I've got another arm, I've got Southwest Colorado, and, and then I sort of branch out the story from there. Mm-hmm. It all sort of spider webs out from a central hub. Um, and that's always been the way I've, I've sort of thought and told stories. And as I've connected with the river, I've realized that it sort of comes back to meet me at all these branching points because all these, all these tributaries flow into one central hub. Um, mm-hmm. And that if I start with the Colorado River, no matter where I branch out to, there's a river, there's a stream, there's a story that comes to meet me on the other end. Uh and it's always fascinating, sometimes terrifying, sometimes just like awe-inspiring. Um, but there's always like something very cool to find. And so the evolution of this project has really been about um about finding those branching points and finding following like those lines however they'll lead me, um, and meeting with as many people as possible and talking to as many people as possible and trying to like find the the commonality and the common truth and like that central hub for everyone on the river. Um, mm. cause I think, you know, the more people I talk to, no matter where they're coming from, um, that central truth is always that the river's in trouble. We're not necessarily managing it the best way. Um, and how can we, how can we do better? And everybody's got a different idea of how to do mm-hmm. better and that's where it branches out again but as long as we know that there's a the central problem that's that we all agree on i think no matter which side of the the equation you fall on i think you know that's at least something and that's what i'm kind of trying to do with this with this documentary um, and with this story is have as many voices as possible represent as many different perspectives as possible and then use those disparate perspectives to find the common truths that are that are are true across the river mm-hmm.
0: it sounds kind of like you know like the seven degrees of kevin bacon it's exactly. like the, it's like the further you go away from the colorado you're going to find a story that brings you back so it's yeah. you know you're trusting that that you're going to follow this com- this common path that will eventually lead to a story that was meant to be and meant to be told that brings you back
1: yeah yeah, yeah. exactly you know it's yeah for example I don't know how deep you look. Oh, I love
0: examples. Bring it on.
1: For example, like... uh, Oh, dear. Put your
0: glasses back up.
1: (laughs) We got this. Um, So one of the things that I, you know, early in my research that that I found interesting, and I was like, how much do I want to get into Westford expansion? Like, I knew that Manifest Destiny was like a thing that I wanted to touch on, but I didn't know, like, how it really tied into... You know the river and so but then i started looking at the green river and i started looking at so a you have the headwaters of the green river up in um the wind river range um the earliest european influence in that area was trappers beaver trappers you look at headwater ecology beavers are a big thing with headwater ecology and with high with riparian ecologies in general, like having beavers present is a big deal. Um, there's a great book eager, um, which um, is just sort of tells the story of beavers. So I started looking at that. And then as I started looking at trappers, I started looking at the way the mountain man culture was actually used to be a sort of media fixation in the East, um, that newspapers were using the stories of the mountain men to lure people out out west to sort of get them out um, and pull them along these immigrant trails which you run into further south along the green river as the immigrant trails start to cross the trail so so the mountain men were used to draw people out which in turn put people into conflict with native tribes which pushed native tribes out which led to other other situations where, you know, so it all connects. And then you have John Wesley Powell came out because the railroad connected just to the west of the Green River. And he came out to the Green River because that's the first place he could get a boat to that was along a railroad that came out from the, from the east. And so he brought his boats out and he deposited them at Green River because of the railroad and because expansion had encouraged people to build a transcontinental railroad um but all along the way it's also resource extraction and so you you have like this series of like resources that are are commoditized and then over over utilized over extracted and then they move on to the next one so it starts with beavers it goes to bison it goes to oil and it goes to um yeah other mineral deposits um and then you go to water finally and it all sort of like, as you go down the Green River, as you follow the Green River from Headwaters down to, to where it is meets the confluence of the Colorado River, uh, you see all of that in progression. Um, you talk about, you can talk about outlaw culture. And, you know, as, as you look at, the Green River was like the main area where the Wild Bunch and Butch Cassidy sort of made their trade. Um, and they took up lives of crime because they couldn't find enough water to be homesteaders. So because there was a lie that was perpetuated on the East Coast that there was enough land and enough water for everyone, and that lie was perpetrated, again, by mountain men and and by this sort of propaganda that was spurring people west. Because of that, you had people turning to lives of crime and creating this further myth of the west that so it all spirals together and it all links together in really interesting ways
0: yeah and you talked about that and you talked about how how complex the story is and hence why you mm-hmm. want to create more of like an eight-part series talking yeah. about the headwaters as the you know series one or, or story one or video one and then moving to the confluence and then and then on and so forth. I really see that you visualize this and this is a strength of yours and not a lot of people can do this. I see you seeing it so clearly and I'm just, I'm curious, like where does the passion come from, the curiosity and also the retention of information?
1: Um, man, I think it's like equal parts sort of insanity. and. <laughs>
0: oh. Um, a little insanity i I knew it
1: if you ask my fiance she'll say 100 okay um, uh but no we uh you know when i look at it i i try to find the things that connect and anytime i've told a story or anytime i've made a film or you know written anything like i've tried to do so in a way that the the points connect right so if i start at point a like i've got to get to point z but like I need to make sure that there's a b c d mm-hmm. you know I, I need to make sure that it all works together and that it all ties back together and the best stories are when you get down to z and it connects back to a or it connects back to f you know and then you keep the spiral going mm-hmm. right like everything is linked back to each other um it's kind of this weird way that my brain works like where i don't i don't create linearly and i don't like but but it all makes sense in my head like that eventually if I start here, eventually I'll get to here, but like, it'll do this weird windy mm-hmm. path, um, to get there.
0: Well, I I, 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 visually I'm seeing like a filter. You're just the filter yeah. and then you'll produce the story and you, we don't need to see how it all works in the filter. Exactly. Like you're going to yeah. process the information yeah. and you're going to be really fucking good at like the outcome and the story and the content and the creation of the product.
1: Well, I thank you. I like to think so. Uh, <laughs>
0: I think we I, work I think, very yeah, similarly. I, <laughs> That's why yeah. I'm like, I think, I think, I know I that, think that mind. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> Sorry,
1: go ahead. That's, yeah. Um, I think, you know, what um, the use of the term like filter is, I think, great. Um, even though, like traditionally, I have no filter when I talk. So.
0: Oh no! It's they're not con- they're not related, my friend. <laughs> um,
1: but um, but I you know I see myself as a, as a conduit with this mm. um, uh, with this story, right? So if you know, let's say the story is a river, and if it's a hundred different paths of a river, river, I'm this sort of sluice gate that's sort of helping it channel into a main stem of the river, uh, and that's the story. Um, you know, I, I try to bring, it's interesting that like you asked so much about my background and and sort of who I am, because that's the thing that I find hardest to bring to a story Mm. because I don't, I don't want to infuse myself so much in the story that it distracts from the story itself. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for me, it's, especially with this story, Um, And as and as I look to sort of be that sort of conduit or that sort of filter to allow people who have been marginalized for centuries um, in their voices um, and trying to to provide an opportunity for people who have been sort of pushed to the outskirts of the conversation to tell their story. Like for me to do that, I can't put myself in the story. Right. So I don't. You know, I don't know how much of me is actually going to be on camera or like in this. Like, I don't. I'm self-conscious about my voice. Like, um, like, so I'm I'm not going to be ultimately doing the voiceover. Like, I'll I'll write in a way that sort of allows the voices to tie together. Um, but really, it's it's going to be interviews and and these voices telling the story of the river the whole way down um because it it's not you know I am I live in California I'm a neophyte to the river world you know I've I've interviewed people like um Richard Derek Coon who's spent you know 40 years on the river just thinking about the river um you know talking to eventually talking to people like Jack Schmidt um
0: oh dude heard, my know. first river trip
1: yeah, I heard that on your last, the last episode. <laughs> Mr. Schmidt. Um, yeah, like I like I was trying to interview him back in 2019 and I'm hoping to get a chance to um going forward. Um, or like Jason Robison or like any of these people who know the river better than anyone. I feel like I would be at a disservice saying that like I am the expert on the river and I should be that my voice is the one that should be dominating the story. Mm. Um, So really what I'm trying to do with the documentary is just be um, to provide a framework for that story to to tell itself Mm -hmm. Um, and use this idea of tributary streams leading into the main stem and the cyclical nature of the whole watershed, that the things that happen at the Delta or what used to be the Delta affect the headwaters and vice versa. And that decisions made a hundred years ago because of the salton sea have affected everything upstream and it's the reason why we have the hoover dam it's the reason why we have glen canyon and Fontenelle and like all of the dams along the river like we have because of the salton sea flooding back in 1907 or
0: 1906.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah so it all links together and I'm just trying to provide a framework for the story to tell itself. Um, well,
0: I like to say, I, I, I put this as you're know, the lens, right. Mm-hmm. You're Not only, and I, I, I understand the feeling of not wanting to place yourself in the documentary, but also feeling a sense of wanting to share your story. Um, mm-hmm. But you should be proud of like the way your lens has been created from however many years you've been alive and all the experiences that you've gotten to this point so that you can tell the story in a way um i I see you at ground level understanding how people hear, think see so that you can tell it in a way that most of the the general public can understand i don't know i just kind of see you there as like the front lines and yeah taking a lot of the brunt and i think you should be proud of that
1: oh well yeah i mean i am Uh, a lot of work i'll be proud of it once it's done in a couple years um i think i'll be able to look back and see that i did something good but Mm -hmm. every time i have a win and it's like every week there's like a new win i feel and it's awesome and it's a great feeling i was out of making films for five years um so this is sort of my coming back to it Mm -hmm. um i worked in the film industry and production from much from my graduation of, of graduate school to 2015 um and really got burnt out on the industry like really got like frustrated because like i was i was working 80 hour weeks like working my i don't know working my ass off can i say that yeah, my oh ass
0: absolutely off.
1: okay <laughs> i don't know what sort of censorship you no
0: know. <laughs> um,
1: no but i was i was working my ass off and uh but I was working for people who didn't appreciate it, and I was mm-hmm. working for on on shows that I didn't that I didn't appreciate that I felt mm-hmm. like were were just there for mindless entertainment, and that wasn't who I wanted to be, and that wasn't the kind of that wasn't the kind of filmmaker I wanted to be, and I and I didn't want to be in a in an environment that was ultimately toxic to my creativity, mm-hmm. and so I walked away, like literally. Um, i it's interesting like so um again bringing it back to the river so in 2014 i did a little road trip between shows um it was my first sort of like attempt at really hiking since i had my knee surgery back in 2013 for what um uh, i had a torn meniscus in my knee okay um and so so i had a a knee surgery and I, I just didn't fully trust it. And so I didn't really do a lot of hiking and I went out and I actually took my sister. She had never been out to the Southwest. So I was like, okay, we'll do a road trip for your spring break. And so we went out and I showed her Zion. And she fell in love with Zion and we went out and saw the grand Canyon and we went and we wandered through Antelope Canyon near page. And we, we went to horseshoe bend, we went to, Canyon to Shea, where like she had never been, but I had been like when I was three. And we did a horseback ride there and and like talked to the Navajo there. Like the Navajo guide was like telling us, like, going into depth, like for four hours, like on the culture of his people and the history of his people. Mm-hmm. And we were just eating it up. And you know, that's something I I'm looking to do on, on this too, is go back into the canyon and just spend some time on horseback meeting the people who live you know, in this ancestral place.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, may I interrupt? Just to be a good storyteller, okay. I, I see that you're a good listener. Yeah. Because you have to listen and filter and then yeah. and then reproduce.
1: Yeah. I, as I talk so much, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> um. I, I want to interrupt though real quick because yeah. like a lot of people may know or not know, like what is this cocktail of a good listener, very creative, wants to tell a story is brave enough to do so where does this come from
1: um again it's a little bit of insanity Uh, (laughs) um no i'm like definitely my parents encourage parents okay Um, yeah like my dad support my dad introduced me to storytelling at a Mm. young age and you know i you know like i grew up and i was a sponge just reading everything um what's your sign my sign um so i'm a gemini cancer cusp
0: oh okay
1: (laughs) yeah depending on your horoscope i'll take the better one
0: gotcha Um,
1: okay (laughs) i don't know what that's about me but um but yeah no i you know i i've always been a little bit introverted again like moving around a lot like you know stories and books and watching movies were um you know those were my friends in a lot of cases um you know, there's there's some book series that I still reread just because, like, I feel like they're my best friends.
0: Ooh, which ones? Um, if you're willing to share. Uh,
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the big one is going to be The Wheel of Time. Uh, okay. It's a fantasy fantasy series. It's about fifteen books. Damn. I would recommend it, but you know, it's it's again, it's biting off a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like that that huge epic storytelling that I think probably informs a lot of the ways i try to tell stories like i i go big with everything um but i think you know when i started you know making movies in high school just with my buddy like we did it because he he had signed up for a video production class and he was like you should do it too and we'll just have a class together and i was like okay and so we went and, and then like we just started making movies like every weekend we'd go out and we'd make a little movie and we made, God, I think it was like 20 or 25 little movies, including a feature in high school. (laughs) Uh, And they're just, they're all terrible, but you know, they're, it was fun. Um, And so I, you know, I remember like, we had a conversation junior year and I was like, I was like, his his name's Bart. Um, I was like, Bart, like, are you, I kind of want to do this forever. And he was like, Yeah, but I don't feel like I'd ever make money at it. I was like, <laughs> I don't even care. I just want to do this forever. Um, I still have yet to make money at it. Um, but uh but I don't care because like it became the way that I could tell stories and storytelling was always so important to me. Like again, cycling back, like I grew up and when I was a little kid, like you know this the stories that my parents told me weren't like we didn't read Hansel and Gretel or we didn't like it it wasn't like European stories it was Native American stories like I grew up I had a book coyote stories and I remember it I still have it which one
0: which one is it
1: oh it's like this little like dog-eared paperback and and I don't know it's called coyote stories and I don't know who wrote it not coyote
0: stole fire coyote
1: well it's got everything like so it's it's like this whole like it's kind of like thick okay but this and it's got like drawings and everything like that but it cool. it is it, basically like coyote and the raven like going through all these like old coyote stories um and these sort of myths and these sort of legends like those are the things i grew up with and and that sort of you know that sort of fantastical like going into this other world and like laughing at this trickster figure and that informed my sense of humor and that informed like like my interest in just sort of getting lost in these sort of fantastical stories um and finding other worlds and getting lost in other worlds
0: Mm, Um, even imagination yeah yeah
1: yeah um and so that that all sort of fed into my wanting to tell stories and then you know undergrad like i had some professors that were really motivating, uh, at the university of Iowa and just let me sort of explore my space and get as weird and esoteric as I could. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of it was film studies, what I did at Iowa. And so being able to dive into philosophy and, but still within a framework of film, um, was huge. And then obviously like living in New Zealand and connecting film and nature in a way, um, and then I had some really superb professors at, at in graduate school that really encouraged me. And then after school, like um, when I worked in the film industry, I had some very strong mentors. I had some some really encouraging um, assistant directors that I worked with. Like um, who? So um, one of my best friends in the industry is named uh, Linda Montanti. Uh, she got me my first job. She got me started. She actually was um the first assistant director on my last show which was jane the virgin um so like my last show like i made the decision like i turned down working on a marvel show so that i could go work on that with her Mm. um and you know like she was hugely important to me she was like the first ad on uh la confidential and uh, a bunch of like really cool things back in the day, um, but you know, I, and I, I had some really cool experiences working in the film industry. But but the there's there's a there's a strain of thought in the film industry that um, kind of encourages people to excel by standing on top of other people. Um, and so by putting other people down and pushing other people down beneath you, that's the way that you rise up. Um, and that has never been the way I've worked. Um, and it's never been the way I wanted to work. And the more I got sucked into that, the more sort of disheartened I I got, the more I sort of felt dissuaded from you know being in the industry or doing the thing that I'd wanted to do for 20 years at that point um and it was kind of like a, a dark place and but i went out to circle it back again i went out on the southwest <laughs> road trip with my sister and she had to leave and i dropped her off in albuquerque and then i drove back up and i wound up going over to the needles district in Canyonlands, which one of my favorite places in the world and i i hiked out to the confluence um and so i i started early got out it was like AM when I got out to the conference and I just sat there and I watched the river and I looked at the the green water of the green and I looked at the orange water of the Colorado and just the way it mixed. And I was like, this is cool. I feel good. My knee felt healthy. Like I I felt good. And I was like, I'm going to hike the Pacific Crest trail next year. Um, and I was like, and I'm going to make a movie about it. I'm going to do a documentary on Pacific Crest trail. Um, and then I just kept walking, and I wound up walking 24 miles that day, and like ran out of water halfway through, and didn't care because I was just walking.
0: <laughs> Classic tourist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> just kidding, um, go on. because <laughs> well, I had planned for an eight-mile hike, and I was just like, "Well, no, I can turn down. You know, I can turn down this canyon here, and I can. Oh, and then I can go all the way over to Chester Park, and then I can, oh, go back this way, and."
0: Damn, uh, big just, hike.
1: It just kept going. Yeah. And it was amazing. And I I love every minute minute of it. Um, and I got done and I was like, yeah, I can do this. I can. And so I started planning a hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. And I and I basically I took the job on Jane the Virgin, knowing it was gonna be my last show, knowing I wanted out of the in- industry, doing it for Linda so that I could sort of give her something back for being such an influence in in my career and just teaching me how to, you know, be responsible and, um, in a lot of ways. And then I spent that time sort of like I did a, a Kickstarter that was successful. Um, I sort of had all this planned for, for doing a documentary. I reached out to a couple of hikers along the way, um, like, and we all sort of planned to sort of shoot in advance. And then I got out on the trail and three days in, I didn't get any footage. I didn't get any interviews and I had a nervous breakdown because I didn't get any content. And I was like, I was sitting in my tent, just like miserable because I was like all alone in camp and everybody had left. And I remembered I was like, like I, I cried. I was just like, I'm a failure. Like I, I suck like I can't hike more than 10 miles a day with with my pack. I can't, I can't get the content that I want. Like, and, you know, it it was kind of like this sort of breaking point where I was like, am I doing this for the right reasons? Like I came out to make a documentary um, because I wanted to reclaim my voice and my storytelling. But like, was I actually experiencing it? And so I wound up hiking out of camp that day, determined to sort of hitch a ride as soon as I got to the next town. And I will end up running into these two hikers along the way. Um, and their names were No Trace and Unbreakable. Um, so those are their their trail names. And again, sorry if this is going. No. I promise this is no, going somewhere. I
0: trust you're gonna bring it back.
1: <laughs> it back at some point, but you know, I I wound up sort of working with them, and or walking with them for a while ways. And they were like, "Seems like you're struggling." I was like, "Yeah, I think I'm done. I think I'm gonna quit as soon as I can." They're like, "Okay, well, we'll walk with you for a bit." And they they very like surreptitiously put me at the lead of the of the train, <laughs> and they let me set the pace. And and no trace just walked behind me, just talking my ear off about whatever, and he just. He told me, he's like, you can do this. you got, like, you're walking. You've got a good gait. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get to Canada. You just take one step at a time and you'll get there, right? And so that sort of was like this moment where I was like, okay, yeah. So if I just, if I stop looking at this big picture, right, and if I stop thinking, like, I need to do this whole thing, and if I don't succeed at this whole thing, whether it's hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, or whether it's making a movie, or whether it's, you know, just life. If I stop looking at the big picture and I start bringing it down into steps, and I start looking at like, okay, so this step links to this step, and this step links to this step, and if I keep linking those steps together, it'll get me to the end eventually. And so that's what I just started doing, and I stopped focusing on making a movie, trying to succeed at a goal that wasn't authentic to the experience and i started just taking photos and just having genuine interactions and i made some amazing friends just just talking with them and just sort of connecting on another level and then i broke my leg on mount whitney (laughs) and then that led to a whole thing and so i wound up having to quit the pct and then i was recovering up at my parents house in washington and I was like, what am I going to do next with my life? I don't want to go back to LA. I don't want to go back to the film industry. What do I do next? And I wound up, you know, just looking at my still photography. And I was like, doing a lot of editing on my still photography. And I was like, yeah, like that's the stuff that I'm really enjoying doing right now. And I'm able to tell stories by just going out and walking and just going out and like finding a place and shooting it. And I don't need a lot of money. I don't need backing i don't need anybody to help me tell that story but i can go and i can capture an image with my camera and that can be my story get mm. um, full control, I co- I had control yeah and i was like i was like okay i need to take a step back and i just need to start taking steps towards telling stories in miniature and i started writing a little bit and and eventually it all sort of it all sort of coalesced, you know, I I was taking more trips out to the Southwest. I was doing more shoots in Zion. I was doing more shoots like in Canyonlands and arches. Um, I was going to the green Canyon. I was going overseas. I I did some long trails over in Europe. I did 1200 miles in Italy and Spain. Um, And I did like a couple hundred miles in the UK before I got tired of walking through sheep pastures. And I just drove around Scotland for, you know, a couple weeks. But I, you know, I wound up sort of reconnecting with a like my love of nature, uh, and two with my storytelling process, like, I felt like the more I let myself just exist and let myself just follow my own path and take my own steps, I eventually started like, regaining the passion for telling stories for making movies, I started to think back, like, okay, if I'm going to tell a story, like, like, where, what, what would I tell a story about? And and it kept coming back to the Colorado river. Um, And so I started thinking like, okay, well, what's the first step I need to do take to do that? Well, I need to go out. I need to meet some people. I need to talk to some people about the Colorado river. So I did that. And then it wound up sort of snowballing into blood of the west um and that's how i'm still progressing like i have a pre-production plan i have a production plan i have a financing plan that's more or less sort of (laughs) not working but um (laughs) you know it's but i keep taking steps and every day i do one little thing that leads to the greater goal and it's and it's so circling back you ask who those who those formative people were like if of everyone I named like if I have to name like one person who has shaped where I'm at currently, it's it's no trace. Like it's mm. this random person I met for forty five minutes on the Pacific Crest Trail, who just told me keep walking and keep just taking steps and just keep putting these pieces together. Yeah, and it you know it was it was this sort of like beautiful sort of Zen moment, and I never saw him again. Mm-hmm. Like. Well, I know just, he was ahead of me somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, all those inspirational people are like mythical creatures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I swear you fucking live. I swear you're somewhere out there. I'm gonna find you on Google, <laughs> you know, exactly. but you never do. And you're like, I don't know. I'm I'm not pretending here like this isn't a figment of my imagination. But it just yeah. sounds like um, you know, all the stars are aligning for you to to really hone in your past and your past of, like you said, like you said, you had your post-production, you have all these pieces in place that you've learned, which is a huge gift. So you're legit. And you're not just like shooting from the hip. And I see, and that's why I reached out to you because I looked at your website awesome. and I I just said, we both have a common interest in the Colorado river and you're doing it right. And when you said that um, you and your sister went, did the road trip and you said you went to Horseshoe Bend, that's your, it's so iconic. And um, I think that's, yeah, you did a great job there. And, um, I'm, I'm really stoked for people to really like dive into your website, the series. I mean, when I looked at each part that you're, you put down you're there's going to be eight parts, upper grand. I've mm-hmm. seen that I've been at the wind river range, um, part two, the yeah. green river spent like six years there part three Canyon country, which is explain.
1: Yeah. So like the way I look at, I, so like, this is uh, something that I, I'm actually like I'm really excited about. So, um, I looked at it at the at, at the confluence of the Green and Colorado River. Okay. And I looked at right. it. Basically, you have two rivers coming to one, but you also have like the series of dialectics that set up throughout basically between the Colorado border and the Arizona border in Utah that you have Two rivers, you have two towns in Moab and Green River. You have two different federal units you have Canyonlands and then you have Glen Canyon. You have two different canyons you have Cataract and Glen Canyon. Um, You have east side, west side with Escalante, Grand Staircase area. You have Bears Ears on the other side, both facing similar sort of shrinking, condensing forces that hopefully this year get reversed. Um, but you have this series of like duality and comparisons that can be set up. Talking to someone like Mike Diehoff, um really sort of crystallized a lot of it for me where he's sort of looking at cataracts and Glen Canyon and the recession of Lake Powell and that's exposing a more wild river through Cataract Canyon to the detriment of like Powell, but is the detriment of like Powell actually that bad of a thing? Um, but I can draw all these comparisons and basically make Canyon country from just above the confluence to Glen Canyon dam. That can really be like this story of like, sort of like a tale of two cities, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you have like a national park that handles the colorado river very well i would say Mm -hmm. um that manages it well and then you have the national recreation area uh that is basically destroyed this canyon that you know john wesley powell said was the most beautiful place he saw along the entire river um and those are two stories of two federal units two federal agencies that have managed it in very different ways it's two different styles of management one has had very positive effects for ecology. one is a very detrimental effects for some ecology one is preserved history the other one is not um, if you look at the green river from basically just south of desolation to the confluence um you have a lot more extraction you have a town in green river that is struggling economically because it's still kind of stuck in this extraction based economy. Whereas you have, uh, on the other side on the Colorado, you have Moab, you have Westwater Canyon, which is very healthy. You have, you know, McInnis is very healthy. Um, and then everything leading up to the confluence on, on the Moab side. Um, is sort of doing things in the right way you have a tourism-based industry you have recreation-based industry um and it's basically again a dualism you have the decline of extraction and the rise of recreation and as recreation becomes more of an economic force throughout the watershed like how does that displace other industries and how does that are we able to maintain our economics and the economic Viability of the river by just focusing, leaning more into the recreation side of things. So mm-hmm. um that's sort of how I'm looking at that third episode, that canyon country episode. Oh, I love um, it. As a way of sort of looking, taking a deep look and saying, like, you know, we have multiple ways of doing these things. I'm not saying either one's right or wrong, but like if we look at the evidence, like, we can kind of see some patterns that maybe we can take some micro adjustments and actually affect change. Mm -hmm. Um, So the episode three is really getting into some of the contemporary issues that are, I I feel like episode one and two are really about the history of the West and history Mm -hmm. of the rivers. And episode three is really like, this is what's happening now. Mm -hmm. This is, this is where things are going.
0: And then move Um, us into episode four, five, six, tell the story there.
1: Yeah. So, uh, episode four is my chance to dive into the San Juan watershed, um, and to connect with the Navajo, connect with the Hickory Apache, connect with the Southern Utes, um, dive back into prehistory and look at, um, the ancestral Puebloans, Mm -hmm. um, and, and really sort of look at, um, that native story and, and really dive in, um, to helping them to tell their story through their own voices. Um I have possible like um contact that I'm trying to connect with the um with the president of Navajo Nation. He emailed me back mm. recently. I'm trying to like get as many native voices as possible with it. Um to really like have as much perspective as I can with it. Um, but it's also telling stories of sort of like looking at at history, and looking at a history of, if we look at the ancestral Puebloans and the disappearance of of their culture, and why that happened, one of the leading um, instigators, it's believed to be a a centuries-long drought, basically, um, that is mirrored right now, um, that dried up their crops, made it unfeasible to live there and have an agricultural base there. And it drove them out of the region for a long time and they had to resettle and their culture became the core, current Puebloan cultures. It became the Hopi, it became the, the Navajo, but the the society and the culture that lived in Mesa Verde and Canyon Canyons of the Ancients and all those amazing cliff dwellings, Canyon de Chez, like that became lost because water disappeared from the region for a long time um and i think there's a parallel there and i think we can use that as a lesson and i'm not the first one to to point this out um but yeah i mean it's that is the river that that feeds like the largest population of native americans Mm -hmm. in the country Mm -hmm. and so i feel like that's an opportunity to tell their story and then also look at some of the the horrible mismanagement of mm-hmm. that river that make it so it's the most dammed river um and the most over allocated river in the basin and i think in the u.s
2: mm. i could be wrong i didn't know um
1: that. yeah it's basically like it's really sucked down by the time it gets to lower and if you wrap the lower you know that it for months out of the year it's it's pretty muddy and mm-hmm. a little slog to get through there and it's sort of impassable um you have the the history of the golden king mine issue in uh 2015 where it turned the animus river yellow and mm-hmm. sort of funneled all this pollutant into the san juan river and had a major ecological catastrophe there i feel like the san juan is like just showing i mean encapsulating the way we've essentially mistreated Mm -hmm. the people of the san juan basin for centuries and you know so i want to dive into the long walk i want to dive into you know kit carson's genocide throughout Mm. there yeah um again tying it back like he was one of those mountain men that was used to draw people west and then he went south and started murdering navajo basically Mm. um and it's like there, there's there's a lot of like really sad history and really sad present that's going on there in the way that we manage native lands, the way we let them, the, the way we allow them to manage their own lands and mm-hmm. and sort of the limitations that we put on them. You know, they there was a big win this past year um, where the Navajo finally got rights to Colorado water from the state of Utah. And they want a big decision there, um, which they shouldn't have had. There shouldn't have been a fight in the first place. So, no. um, like I don't know. Well, so, it's so just yeah, it just seems
0: like good timing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So and I, you know, I I'm hoping to get as much access as I can um, to really allow them to tell their story. Like, like I said, I have a framework for that episode, but it's. Mm-hmm there's only so much I can say like I can, I can chase these rabbit holes and I can follow these paths, but
0: mm-hmm. ultimately
1: it's going to be the story of these native peoples to, to tell that story.
0: Well, that, um, I mean, part one, two, three, and four are very close to my heart and five yeah. Um, I've only done like five trips, but the grand Canyon. So the San Juan feeds into the, the Powell reservoir, which feeds into mm-hmm. yeah. grand Canyon. So talk a little bit about like five, six. And what what sure, what can yeah. people what are, what can people look forward to to see and hear from
1: yeah. you? Um so episode five, like um The Canyon, everybody talks about the only canyon. The canyon the fucking canyon. The fucking canyon. Um I feel like so everybody talks about the Grand Canyon, right? Like if you if you look for Colorado yeah. River documentaries, there's not many Colorado <laughs> River documentaries like that are Colorado River documentaries. But if you look for Grand Canyon documentaries specifically, there's a hundred of them. <laughs> um, and Pete McBride did an excellent one a couple of years ago that I'm like really jealous of. because yeah, and um, Like I would love to connect with him. Um, he's on sort of my wish list. Um, but, you know, everybody talks about the canyon as the canyon right like as if it's an insular place the only canyon. um and yes i want to raft down the canyon and that's part of the reason why i want to do this um
0: come with me yo
1: if you're offering like yes i'll be there just let me know when okay um but uh you know i i want to sort of see the canyon from the river i've hiked into the canyon um I you know it's a different perspective down there visually, but but for me the story of the Grand Canyon is actually what's at the perifer- periphery, and I sort of I liken it in my sort of outline of it uh, to this sort of castle under siege, right? You have these high impenetrable walls, right, um, that are protecting this like very precious resource, and yet it's sort of from all sides it's under attack, and so the episode the way i look at it is actually well yes like the 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 through line of the story is going through the canyon from top to bottom the story is actually like first part is going to talk about the north end of the canyon where you have glen canyon dam blocking sedimentation to such an extent that the there's no more beaches or like the beaches are, are being reduced that the the water is colder and therefore you don't have the same fish populations native fish are aren't able to live in the grand canyon really anymore um and then you have all sorts of issues with water quality uh, as climate change happens and you see temperatures rise in a less sediment filled uh watershed you have um more chance for cyanobacteria blooms and things like that, which um are scary. They just had one in Zion recently that was like heartbreaking to think about. Um so you know talking about that, talking about um the Little Colorado River as sort of the the big the next big battleground for Colorado water, right? Um you have three dams that they're proposing. You have Fortunately, this hopefully dead project at the confluence with the with the tram that goes down to the base. Um, you have a history of uranium mining that stretches up the lower Colorado River to the Puerco River, um, and in 1979 there was a huge radioactive spill that basically flooded the Puerco River with um more radiation than three mile island and the biggest radioactive disaster in the u.s history and nobody talks about it um but it's all from uranium mining and they again fortunately just sort of put a stop on uranium leases around the grand canyon but it's sort of a case study for what uranium mining could do to the canyon um Looking at sort of the south um, and the west, you have the Havasupai and the Hualapai who are taking two very different approaches um, to the way that they sort of utilize um, or, or the way they sort of are, are able to manage their lands and maintain control of their lands. The Havasupai are very insular. The Hualapai are... A lot more open and they're mm-hmm. um they're allowing they have the the big helicopter pads and they have helicopter alley going through there and so looking at those different um effects on the canyon itself um looking at the the effect of tourism um the commodification of the south rim in particular how everything is essentially like privately owned on the south rim now and you have so many people just clustered in this one spot and what is that doing to the river um so a lot of it is is sort of looking at sort of everybody thinks the grand canyon is always going to be there and it's always going to be safe but there's so many threats to it and and so episode five is really diving into that um let me know if I'm going too long on any of this.
0: No, it's great. Um, and then, yeah, six, seven, eight. Episodes, what, do, what do you want to touch six about is that? The
1: Virgin, yeah, episode six is the Virgin River. Um, it's sort of like a smaller tributary of the Colorado for sure, um, but it's one of the most important to me. Zion is my favorite place on earth. Um, but uh, one of the things that um, that I found most interesting in my research and one of the things that I think is is a deterrent for appreciation of zion and the areas around zion are this sort of idea of overcrowding right so if you go to zion like it's like waiting to get into disneyland sometimes and that has some significant ecological effects on the park it has some ecological effects on the virgin river you had the cyanobacteria bloom this year you have warmer waters you have less water Um, and then you have places like St. George and Las Vegas that are continuing to grow. St. George is sucking water out like of everywhere. Um, if you look just north of sort of Cedar city, like along that I-15 corridor, you have a major um, subsidence going on because St. George is just sucking water out of the aquifer. And I think it's like three or four feet
2: of drop
1: has happened in the I-15 corridor there. Wow. um and so like going back to the Grand Canyon, like um the north rim of the Grand Canyon, the Kaibab Plateau is another sort of case study for uh, that's sort of famous amongst um like in wildlife circles, um and possibly like apocryphal in its in its actual science, but um but basically it's this it's this study that um talks about carrying capacity of an area. And you have the story of the Kaibab deer um, that says, basically, Teddy Roosevelt said he didn't want to hunt any more deer on the Kaibab Plateau, or he he wanted to preserve the deer on the Kaibab Plateau, so they killed off all the predators. And there's this huge population boom, boom, but then the population wound up dying off because there wasn't enough vegetation for them to eat. and wound up really causing some serious problems to the Kaibab Plateau. So, looking at carrying capacity, and if we apply it to humanity, right? So, if we're looking at a desert ecosystem and we're looking at a desert environment, like, at what point are we putting too many people in a space that can't support those people? Mm. And so, that's sort of what episode six starts to, to look at. Like, population in the Southwest continues to grow, and I'm not necessarily advocating like. We get rid of population in the Southwest or that we limit it. Um, But should we look at carrying capacity for humans or do we just continue operating under this sort of sense of hubris that we'll make it work, which is the way we operate along the Colorado River throughout its history is we'll find a way to make it work. We'll just add another dam, or we'll mm-hmm. block some more water, or we'll like band aids, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you keep having these band aids, and it keeps not working. Mm-hmm. I liken it to the analogy of if you're holding, you really love this bird, and you're holding it in your hand, and you don't <laughs> want to let it go, and so you keep squeezing and squeezing, and you kill the bird.
0: Like Pretty Bird, uh, like Dumb and Dumber, Pretty Bird, yeah, Pretty Bird. <laughs>
1: burn <laughs> you know it's, the, you know this episode six i think is probably where i've gotten the most pushback
0: mm. um,
1: like i think it's it's a hard thing to talk about um and to, to talk about population i you know i butted some heads with some with uh, the communications director of the of the um central arizona project recently mm. um i just asked if they were interested in helping she was like absolutely not (laughs) not that it's a problem she's fine doing that i expect to have more than a few no's but i think the fact that i'm looking at population is probably one of those things that might be a gray area with the the project and something i just have to navigate but Mm -hmm. i think it's an important conversation to have i again i don't want to take a stand on it i don't want to I don't want to sort of add my voice to the mix, but I want to sort of see what people are, are saying about these issues. Um, mm-hmm. St. George, especially, is is growing way too fast, and it's unsustainable for the resources that it has available to it. Yeah, and you've you've got a number of issues with St. George right now that so the the proposed pipeline out of Lake Powell sucking more water out of Lake Powell. Uh, you have the um, there's a a highway that they want to put through desert tortoise country up there um, just to build more golf courses and, and, and other, you know, suburban developments. Um, You know, those are, those are real issues. And I think, I think they need to be tackled. So that's sort of episode Mm -hmm. six and then episode seven is sort of looking at the lower Colorado, everything South of Hoover dam. um, And it's, cycling back to the origins of the colorado river compact it's looking at the salton sea disaster of 1906 um it's looking at the ongoing disaster that's happening with the salton sea as water evaporates and it just sort of leaves this toxic sludge underneath that gets aerosoled and like blown into los angeles or phoenix um air quality is a huge issue along the the Salton Sea and in the Coachella and Imperial Valleys right now um, I've been working with um, out of lake Havasu the there's a group called the clean Colorado River Conservation Society I think I got it right um, but they're actually a, 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 an organization that sort of is it connects like all the different municipalities along the, the lower Colorado as well as the Native American tribes. There's several Native American tribes along uh, Lower Colorado that I'm hoping to reach out to. Um, and they're doing some interesting work in terms of water quality and in terms of basin management um, and looking at the hydrology. So the native hydrology of the Lower Colorado is fascinating to me because mm-hmm. it's a meander, right? And I don't know how much you know about that, but it's basically by putting in all the dams along the way, it, it basically changed A river that wandered over hundreds of miles to a very locked in channel with step pools uh, with each of the reservoirs Mm. and what effect has that had over the ecology there um i think it's a big deal and then um and then on the other side of arizona looking at the gila river um and the issues that that's facing another like very overutilized river central arizona projects um And Phoenix and Tucson have basically made it so that only 10% of the Gila River reaches the Colorado. Um, And, you know, there's organizations like Wild Earth Guardians that are sort of doing some really cool work up in the headwaters of the Gila, trying to protect it there. Um, And there's all sorts of sort of native tribal issues that I'm hoping to dive into as well with the San Carlos Apache and the Pima Maricopa. the people along the Gila river um, to help tell that story of basically what happens when the water to the quality of the water, to the content of the water, to the amount of water available to human civilization by, by the time it reaches the border with Mexico, which mm. is minimal uh, and then crossing over into the Delta, which everybody knows is no longer a Delta. The water never reaches the sea. Like what does that, what has that done? to the overhaul, you know, ecology of the base of the entire watershed. So essentially, like, I see episode seven kind of <laughs> being a little bit dour, a little bit dark, <laughs> uh, um, because I there's a lot of sort of darkness in the way it's the water looks by the end of its run, right? Mm-hmm. You know, where there's a, I think it's a $3 billion Something like that, uh, desalinization plant in Yuma, just because there's so much salt in the river, by the time it reaches the border, we have mm-hmm. to desalinize it so that it, we can give water to Mexico to fulfill their obligation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just like I feel like the lower Colorado is really just a story of like what all of the other episodes have led up to, like mm-hmm. any of the the issues with management along the river before it gets to Hoover Dam affects everything below it. Yeah. Um so, and then yeah and,
0: well that just yeah it just rounds it out to episode eight where it's episode
1: eight like yeah, i tried to fighting
0: the, the current yeah yeah
1: so and i you know i i like the sort of double entendre of of current
2: mm-hmm.
1: um <laughs> with like fighting fighting the the current state of affairs but also mm. fighting upstream against the river um because it is an ups- uphill fight i think it's an upstream fight to preserve the Colorado and and make it a viable water source for future generations.
0: Mm-hmm. You said um, you've been doing this for a couple of years now. Like how has your life been impacted or changed since you
1: started the project? Well, I see my fiance less. Uh, <laughs> <more>. <laughs> no, no, I'm just We
0: kidding. love you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> love you. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I, <sighs> I think it's opened my eyes a lot to some of the issues we're facing in the West. Um, I knew of some of them, you know, I'd read Cadillac desert. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, like I said, 10 years ago, I was like doing deep dives into, into water issues, um, for my thesis film. Um, I knew, but I didn't know. And it's like, mm-hmm. when you go, it's like every time, even just open up Wikipedia and just following rabbit holes, like I find something new every day. Um, but just talking to people. For example, going out to Denver and meeting water water managers there and talking to people on the West Slope, ranchers, farmers, people who are really struggling because at the headwaters before it even reaches the first town, 70% of the water of the Colorado River is trucked outside of the basin. Um, that's something that's like mildly disturbing to me. And i like not saying it's bad that we give water to Denver, and Denver has a right to water, legally, and and just because there's people there. But it's this one of the questions I've been asking everybody as I've as I've been going along. And like I said, I've done about 24 interviews so far, and I hope to do 10 times that, if not more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Is just you know there's so much talk about like water rights and who has rights to the river and who has rights to this water, and one of the things I keep coming back to is like, what is the right of the river to be a river? Mm. And what yeah. is like does I know that there are in stream flow rights and, and there's there are legal definitions of of rights for a river, but you know, what is the right of the river to just exist and to be to be healthy?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: and I think with all the talk of like how we're going to manage it and how we're going to sort of go into the future like uh, what i want to start hearing is like okay this is how we can be viable and sustainable yeah and sustainable is a huge word right now but i feel like everybody is very reactionary right now to to climate change and to politics and everything else we need to just sort of and hopefully this will happen in 2026 when the the interstate sort of compacts sort of expire and they have to renegotiate, like hopefully there's a strong enough voice that's that's in the room saying, we have to look at the river and we have to look at beyond the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next 30 years. We have to think about it like, this is the lifeblood of the West. This is the reason why the West is able to support people and animals and plants. If we don't have this river, or if we use it to such an extent that it is not a viable ecology, are we going to be able to have people here? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I don't know.
0: Well, I was just going to say like, you know, if you take blood of the river, if you just think of the body, right. And if, if the heart is like the headwaters and the heart is pumping blood out to the body, if each organ takes a little bit more every year and a little bit more and a little bit more then those like last organs that get to kind of experience and 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 get the nutrients from the blood if, if there's nothing there like exactly. you, you're gonna have problems and it's it's yeah. sometimes it just takes changing perspective to see it in a different yeah. light
1: well you you're gonna have organs shut down i yeah. mean like absolutely so right now like the the you have if we're using this analogy, you have the left leg of the Colorado River or i guess right leg depending on which way <laughs> right. the the it's California, right? Yeah, and that's where all the blood's going, mm-hmm. right? And I live in California, and you know, Mark air has some like fascinating books on on Colorado, or sorry, on California water that are just troubling as hell. But you know, I I drive up and down I five, and I see all the you know Congress created dust bowl. And we need more water for farmers. Um, and it's a real issue. And I know that Colorado, California is just sponge. For water and it's
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know yeah the Owens river issues you have you know there, there were plans to suck water all the way down from the yukon river into la that's crazy <laughs> um it's insane but it's <laughs> but it's also like again it goes back to that carrying capacity like
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the los angeles basin really carry 20 million people or however many live there like yeah and like so you know and if we keep sucking water out of the colorado at its at the left foot or the right foot like at what point does the liver fail yeah i don't know who the liver is in this analogy but
0: you know, um vegas vegas is
1: vegas is the, the liver, liver. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well for yeah. someone who's just listening in who's just like oh my god i fucking love what you're doing i love um you know this project i want to well I'm going to put donation and like all those links in the show notes. But um, awesome. if it's someone who has some, a strength to give or uh, resources to offer, how can people find you? How would you like people to connect with you?
1: I mean, people can email me directly anytime. Cool. Uh, it's simple director at blood of the West. We have a contact form on the website, www.bloodofthewest.com. I've tried to make everything as clear and simple as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah, like, our Instagram is at Blood the West. Twitter is at Blood the West. You can <laughs> connect with us, DM us there. Uh, follow us. We'll follow back, uh, share our stuff. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. I've re- I I kind of just like went through your Instagram a little bit and you have some really amazing photography and pull oh, photos. And it's because you're a photographer. Yeah. And so that's kind of like a win-win on your side. So congrats yeah. to that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. there anything? No, I... other... Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I mean like it's it's basically like we're looking for any and all support that we can get yeah um we're trying to be like i said this conduit for everybody to have a voice Mm -hmm. if you feel like you have a story to tell and want to tell it like reach out to me i'd love to start to connect like i have a very expansive and growing list of people i want to interview and i will take time to interview as many people as i can Mm -hmm. um the other thing is going to be obviously financing and um i have a plan for for both trimming the budget down from the top but I need money from the bottom so that I can mm. actually like meet in the middle somewhere
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, I've actually had some really good negotiations and and most of the you mentioned the fundraising page on our website I put that up so people could sort of see where we're at most of the positive gains that I've had so far are in sort of discounts or in kind donations um, you know at some point like uh, you know we just we do need like donations to raise up from the bottom we've got a couple things in the works that may give us some initial cash flow that we can start shooting Hmm. Uh, we had to push back our production date i was hoping to start in april 1st but i think it might be june or possibly september before we can start shooting Hmm. um i want to be done by the end of 2022 um both because there's a lot of stuff happening right now that i want to be out there for um but also 2022 is the hundredth year anniversary of the Colorado river compact.
2: Mm, um, yeah. and I
1: think, you know, there's a lot that needs to be said around that anniversary and, and a reevaluation of, of the decisions made in 1922 are, I think is, is warranted, mm. um, not necessarily rewriting the compact, but cause I know that's controversial to say, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but just, just sort of looking at it and framing this within that context. Um, And then um, 2022 is also the 150th anniversary of John Wesley Powell's second trip down to Colorado. So it's, there's a couple of things in 2022.
0: that. Well, that sounds like it's a good goal though. And hopefully people listening to this or have some connections that um, will favor your side. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and like I said, like, even if it's not financial, Mm -hmm. if you have a story to tell, or if you want to be a part of it, or if you know someone who wants to be a part of it, like, just send them send them our way or send me an email. Um, I try to connect with everybody who emails me and everybody reaches out to us. Um, you know, my my social media manager is great at sort of reporting me on anything that happens <laughs> uh, that I don't see on Instagram. Yeah, um,
0: Cynthia, so she's to- great. <laughs> she's the
1: best. I, I she, you yeah, know, you found right a good over, egg. Yeah, we're all doing this pro bono right now. So. Yeah um you know eventually like i want to pay us a salary so that we can do this full time and because that's what the river deserves and that's what the story deserves
0: absolutely um
1: and you'll get there you know it's just about yeah i think i think so i'm i'm still (laughs) positive about it um but more than anything i think you know this is a story that needs to be told um and i think the more i dive into it the more i talk to people the more engagement i get is always positive engagement um, yeah, mo- for the most part, like 99% positive. Um, I think people feel the need for this. And I think right now we're at a point in history with the river that we can make positive changes and we can, we can affect positive outcomes along the river. And I think that's, that's, that's where my heart is. And that's what I wanted to do. That's why I'm telling the story and anybody who can help. That'd be great.
0: Love it. Well, we Mm -hmm. talked a little bit about where people can find you. Um, We talked a little bit about kind of goals of 2022 and um, in closing, is there anything else you wish to share with the audience about what you're working on the project and any kind of mile markers that we can help you get to?
1: No, I mean, so yeah, obviously like we have our, our goals on Kickstarter or sorry, not on Kickstarter anymore. We're on Indiegogo and uh, Patreon. Um, so uh we are looking to build our community through Patreon and offer some exclusive content there. Uh we are operating as a nonprofit organization. Um and I've got Congrats. my 501 status, I think, in process right now. But um, but yeah, we are we are going to be 501c3. Um anything that goes beyond operating costs of the production will go back to native tribes and to organizations that we're working with along the river. Um, I'd say if you're interested in in helping out more directly along the river, um, reaching out to pretty much any organization that's working on the river right now is doing good work. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we we I've had some really positive uh, interactions with Nature Conservancy. They're doing some really good stuff. Sierra Club, um Friends of the Yampa has been doing some really cool stuff up uh up north there. Um American Rivers, American Whitewater, like yeah all, of the, all of these organizations, even ones that I I mean, I haven't even been in contact with all of them, but I see that they're just doing such amazing work that I want to be in with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because I think, you know, the river needs everybody's help. And mm-hmm. um, it needs a reevaluation from the ground up. Like there's 40 million people who use this river who rely on this water and if those 40 million people just raise their voices and say we want our water to be coming from a healthy source you know at some point somebody has to listen so Mm -hmm. um you know we all say that there's a problem then maybe we can agree on a solution
0: yeah well, um, in closing, I'd love to ask one final question, and yeah. this is kind of an interesting perspective. but what's the biggest lesson the river wants you to know and convey to the world about this project oh. with this project?
1: Ooh. That's a good question. that's a good question um that everything everything is linked everything everything connects right and mm-hmm. I brought it up a couple of times, but Everything that happens at the delta affects the headwaters, and vice versa. Every decision made uh, along the Dolores River affects what happens in Las Vegas. Um, the, you know, decisions made at the periphery of the river, uh, in terms of the land and the canyons that feed into it, the the tributary streams, the the washes that seem like they're just dry and dusty canyons, everything affects the river and the river affects everything else. Um, you have this magnificent ecology if you just look at it. Um, if you go to Moab and you go down to the needles and you look down and you see the cryptobiotic soil, like it's so unique and so fascinating to, to a place. And one step can remove... 10,000 years of work Um, and that's true all up and down Um, you know uh, 200 years ago we exterminated beavers almost to extinction everywhere along the river and as a result we had to build dams to do the work the beavers were already doing Um, you know we got rid of wolves then we had population booms of deer and elk everything links together. Um, and you know, if we're siphoning off water to Denver out of the river that has an effect in St. George or, or, or in page or in Phoenix where they're needing water there. So it's, I think that would be the thing that I've learned the most. It's just that there's not independent decision making. It's Mm not left versus right. It's not west slope versus front range. It's not you know upper basin versus lower basin. It's it is one basin. It is Mm -hmm. one. We are we are one southwest. We are one Mm. American West. Everything west of the Rockies like is dependent on water more than east of the Rockies. But also, we're we're one nation, and like it all. Like at some point, we need to have conversations. We need to just talk, and we just need to figure things out, um, without without getting upset about it.
0: Yeah. Getting
1: yeah. Personal about it.
0: Well, and you're doing that, you know, yeah. and I appreciate that. Well, before we end, I'd like to take a moment um to acknowledge you. <laughs> um, Thank it's you. it's yeah, it's just it's been really inspiring to see you bringing your passions and skill sets together for this project. I, I really see as like a beautiful confluence, you know, of you telling the story through the lens of an artist paired with your love and um, of bringing more education and awareness of the Colorado River and its, its watershed. You know, mm-hmm. and I can really tell that you're, you care deeply about this project. I, I, I see that you care about the people um, and most importantly, the river. And I just had this like aha moment. I'm like, you're really giving the Colorado River a voice, you know. And almost like we gave her, because I see her as a her. um, We gave her a mic at this conversation too, you know. And it's been an honor to sit down and and just talk with you and and learn. So thank you.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I'm I'm by no means a teacher. (laughs) Learning every day. um, You know, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you and and keep doing the good work that you're doing um Thank you. like i said before we before we started here it's you know you're telling stories too and you're you have a voice and you're sharing the people who you're talking with you're sharing their voices and the more conversation we're having like that the better so uh and more than happy to sort of help you in the future and and i want to interview you in the future (laughs) thank um, you just sort of continue working um and trying to like both try to help the the river that we care about so much so um so keep doing keep doing what you're doing keep up the good work um (laughs) it's a great show and and i'm really proud of you
0: Aw, thank you so much Don. really appreciate it and cheers to new collaborations for 2021 for sure yeah (laughs) awesome all right cheers Well, that's our show. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation with J.R. Robinson. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure and share this link with someone you think would love to support or get involved with his documentary. This project aims to shed light on the most important watershed in the American West. Donations are always welcome and greatly appreciated as they move forward on one of the most expansive and comprehensive documentary projects about the river. Donation links can be found in the show notes or over at bloodofthewest.com. And a quick reminder to subscribe to Eddie Out on social, as well as giving us that five-star rating and review, so we can reach more people and communities like you. I'm very grateful for you taking the time to listen in with me today. And until next time, big hits, big fun, good health, and high water. Cheers.